Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Really excited for this Advent season, and we're starting a new teaching series called The Women of the Advent. Let me explain more about that in a moment. First of all, Advent. What is, what is Advent? Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means a, a coming or an arrival. And it's this, this idea of the season leading up to the arrival of Jesus, our Messiah. And so it's a season of eager anticipation, of of longing and of desire. It can refer to Christ's first or his second coming. And as we read the storyline of the scriptures, we know that the people were long awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And we're so grateful the Messiah has come. And now we, on the other side of that arrival of Jesus, are waiting for his second coming, his second arrival. And so we can experience that season of longing, even as we think about, Lord Jesus, will you return? Will you come soon? And most specifically, Advent, kind of throughout the way that that, that church history has progressed, it's come to refer to a period of time of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So we're going to have four Sundays plus the eve of the eve service, Uh, which is the 23rd, not the 24th, the eve of the eve, with our kids' choir and all that fun stuff, uh, where we look at these women of the Advent. So what is the women of the Advent? First of all, this idea was borrowed from a church down in Bremerton, a buddy of mine named Rob. Uh, I saw something on their Facebook page or something. like, wow, that's a really cool idea. Can I borrow that from you? And he said, I borrowed it from somebody else, so have at it. So where this idea comes from is it comes from Matthew chapter 1. If you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, you know that chapter 1 is one of those long lists of names that people often skip over in their Bible reading plan. Be honest, you've done that, right? I mean, this is church, you can't lie. It's this long list of names, and people look at that and you think, that's kind of a boring long list of names. Well, it's, it's actually way more exciting than you realize, particularly when you factor in these four women. Well, five including Mary, but the four preceding Mary, fascinating. You know, if you read the literature of the ancient Near East, a lot of genealogies, none of them, very few of them, include the names of any women. Sometimes they're there as a side note, but I'll just encourage you. I'm I'm reading through 2 Chronicles right now. Go read 1 Chronicles, go read Joshua, go read Numbers, some of these other lists. There's not a lot of women in there. And it's really interesting when you think about Matthew in particular. Matthew's gospel is really Jewish. He's very clearly writing to a Jewish audience And all four of these women that are named are Gentiles. So there's, and and, and actually, all four of these women have pretty scandalous stories. And I'll just say this up front. I know we've got some some youths in the room with us here. Um, Some of these stories are going to touch on some difficult subject matter. My commitment, as always, is not to be gratuitous. uh, But parents, just be forewarned, you might have some conversations with your kids this afternoon. Genesis 38 and the story of Tamar opens up some real interesting discussion points. Here's what Craig Keener, one of the biblical scholars that I'm leaning on for this series, he said this. He says, Had Matthew merely meant to evoke the history of Israel in a general way, one would have expected him to name the matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Instead, he names four women whose primary common link is their Gentile ancestry. When Matthew cites these four women, he's probably reminding his readers that three ancestors of King David and the mother of King Solomon were Gentiles. The Bible that accepted David's mixed race also implied it for the Messianic king. 
And here's the good news for those of us who are not of Jewish descent. Matthew thus declares that the Gentiles were never an afterthought in God's plan, but had been part of his work in history from the beginning. So that's the foundation for the series. And I thought, you know, we're going to look at the story of Tamar today, but I thought it might be appropriate for today for our scripture reading to actually be what everyone was hoping and praying it would be, the entire genealogy from Matthew chapter 1. And when Pete and I were talking and, and kind of planning this out, of, you know, the different scripture reading sections, and, and I said, it'd be really fun to do Matthew chapter 1, but that's a really challenging thing to ask one of our scripture readers to do. And Pete and I looked at each other and we said, there's only one woman that we feel is qualified for the task, and that's Miss Ginny Retko over here. So, and actually, I, I, it's not on purpose that she's going to read the genealogy. So, uh, sorry, that's a bad joke, but I love it. I really love it. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, you can. I'm going to invite Miss Ginny to come, and she's going to read this list of the names of the ancestors of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So let's turn our attention to God's word now. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. Thanks, Jenny. Good job. (laughs) Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for even a passage like Matthew chapter 1, just how much gospel is embedded in this list of names. Uh, names who are written down for our edification, for our benefit, 
uh, names, people, Lord God, that you care about, names that you have been orchestrating throughout history to bring about the birth of Jesus, our Messiah, the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And so, God, I ask that you would help me to teach that which is true and that which is helpful to build us up into, into uh, relationship with Jesus. God, I ask and I pray for each and every single person here that you would help us to lower our defenses, to lower down our walls, that we might receive deep grace from you. And God, we thank you even for the witness and the testimony of this woman, Tamar, whose life we're going to examine today and the record of her, of her choices, her actions. And God, so thank you for this story. Thank you for this woman in particular. And may our time be focused on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you've ever taken a philosophy class or maybe an ethics class, you may have heard of a certain scenario. It sometimes goes by different names, but the idea of a tragic moral choice. When I did ethics classes, uh, that's the language that was used, the tragic moral choice. The idea being, when you find yourself in a situation, and, and there really is not a clear good option. There's not really a clear good choice. It seems like you kind of have two bad choices to make. The classic example is that of a train. A train is barreling down a set of tracks, but it's headed toward a bridge that has gone out. And you have no way to communicate with the the train conductor, but you can see that they're headed toward disaster. Now you do have a, a lever that you can pull. There is a switch that you can flip and it will divert the train away from the bridge that is out. But you can see that on this secondary set of tracks is a young child playing on the tracks and you have no way to warn the child to get off the tracks. And so you're faced with this ethical dilemma, this, this choice. Do you not pull the lever and the whole train goes off the broken bridge or do you pull the lever sacrificing the one child for the life of all the people on the train. What choice do you make? And some of you are thinking, well, the first choice I would make is to not sign up for an ethics class so I don't have to deal with stressful questions like that. I think this story today, this this story of Tamar, uh, really kind of feels like that in some ways. This woman Tamar is faced with, with... pretty difficult choice in the scenario that she finds herself in. And the story of Tamar is really interesting because if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis tells the storyline of the family of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob. And and, and in particular, the last section of Genesis, 37 through the end, really tells the story of Joseph. It's more focused on Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph? The one with the the, the colorful robe who was sold into slavery by his brothers and put in prison and then dream interpretation and then rises to the second in command in Egypt and, and eventually is the salvation for his whole family. You guys, you guys have probably heard some of that story, right? Why is this story of Tamar nestled in the middle of that? This whole narrative, this whole ending narrative of the book of Genesis, and here we have one of the more difficult stories in the pages of the Bible, and that's coming from someone who has preached through the book of Judges. This story is right up there with it. The story of Tamar actually begins one chapter earlier, and it begins by when we meet Judah, one of the brothers, one of the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham, and Judah in Genesis 37 is not a good guy. Judah is a scoundrel. Judah is one of the ringleaders who says to his brothers, this, this, this plot against Joseph, he actually says, no, let's not kill him 
Because if we kill him, we'll feel really guilty and we won't make any money. It's more profitable for us if we sell him into slavery, then he'll be as good as dead to us and we can make up a story to our father to tell him, you know, the animals got him or whatever. And so that's how we're introduced to Judah. He is not a good guy. Judah, you turn the page into chapter 38, he runs away from his family after this situation. He runs away and he goes into the land of Canaan and there in Canaan, he marries a woman named Shua. She's Canaanite. And if you know that God's promises to Abraham, God had given Abraham and the family line instructions to not intermarry with the Canaanites. This is not about race or ethnicity. It's about worship. You can see this over and over and over throughout the books of Moses where the instruction is given to not intermarry with the other peoples of the other lands because they'll pull your heart away from Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. But Canaan, I'm sorry, but Judah completely ignores that, sells his brother into slavery, goes into Canaan, marries this woman, has three sons. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Guy named Shelah, what are you going to do? And it is for his oldest son, Ur, that he decides to find a wife. He's there in Canaan. He finds a wife for his son, Ur, and we're introduced to this woman named Tamar, whose name means palm tree. So we're to see her in that light as some, someone of beauty, someone of a refreshing character. She is given in marriage to Ur, but Ur is not a good guy. Uh, he's very wicked, and so the Lord kills him. That's literally what the verse says. It says, Ur was very wicked, so the Lord killed him. That's all it says. We don't know why he was so wicked. We know that his father has acted wickedly. His father is not doing what he's supposed to do, and so it doesn't make, it is, it's not too much of a stretch to think that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, According to the laws and the customs of the land in the ancient Near Eastern world, if a woman was married to a man who dies, the next oldest brother has a legal obligation to marry that wife, to take care of her, and to provide children that will carry on the family name for the older brother. This is known as leveret Marriage. John Walton, who's a Bible scholar, says this. He says, Leveret marriage laws require that if a woman's husband died without offspring having been produced, it was the duty of his brother to bear a child by her in order to continue his dead brother's line. This custom is established as legislation in the Mosaic law. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. But it is also evidenced in the broader culture by its inclusion among the Hittite laws. We have all sorts of archaeological evidence that this is the law of the land. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you women are thinking, like, the last thing on earth I ever want to do is marry my brother-in-law. Okay? Like, I hear you. We're talking about a culture that is very distant and far removed from our culture. You have to remember that not only... Were there not the kinds of social safety net programs that we have? If you were a woman, it's not like, well, my husband passed away. I think I'll go back to school, get my master's degree, and start a new career in social work. Like, that's just not happening in this time in the world. You either are going to go back to your father, you're going to get remarried, or you're going to go into prostitution. Those are pretty much the only options. And so this law provides for the care for the woman. 
So you, you have to remember that the Bible comes to us from a culture that is very different and very distant from 21st century Western post-enlightenment uh, America. It also provides for the family line to be continued in the name of the brother because family lines were a big deal. Again, that's a little bit less of a big deal for us. We have people who maybe don't get married or don't have children and the family line dies off or only have daughters and the name of the family kind of dies off. And to us, it's not as big of a deal. It was a really big deal for people in this part of the world. And I'll spare you the details, but Ur dies Onan, the next brother, takes Tamar in marriage, but he treats her extremely shamefully. Um, There are some blush-worthy verses in this section. You can go look it up on your own. But he treats her very shamefully. He treats her like a prostitute. He he uses her for his own pleasure, but he does not fulfill his duty and his, his legal obligation to provide a child. And so the Lord puts him to death as well. So now Tamar has been twice widowed, twice married to despicable, wicked men, and twice widowed. She's been through a lot already. And so Judah makes a request of her. Judah, the the father-in-law, says, hey, listen, why don't you remain unmarried, and when my youngest son, Sheila, Sheila, when Sheila grows up, I'll let you marry him and he can take care of you and he can provide for you. And, and so why don't you just not get married until then? It actually tells us in these verses in chapter 38 that Judah is fearful of losing Sheila as well. It's almost like he's viewing Tamar as bad luck. This woman is bad luck. Tamar has cost me two sons. And that he had no intention of having his final son marry this woman, Tamar. He makes this promise Tamar complies. It says she puts on the garments of widowhood. She goes and lives with her father, and she waits for Sheila to come of age. We'll pick the story up in verse 13. This is where the the plot starts to thicken. So Tamar was told, hey, your your father-in-law Judah is, is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. By the way, Judah, his wife had just died. So, so Judah's wife had died, and he's, gonna, he's in the mourning and the grieving process. He says, I'm going to go do the it's sheep shearing time. It's that time of the year. So when she heard this, she took off her widow's garments, and she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. I mean, just think about all that that Tamar has been through up to this point. Married to a wicked man, er, widowhood. Marriage to a second wicked man, widowhood. Uncertainty of her future, and now is seeing that her father-in-law Judah has has broken his promises to her. It's kind of like a, all right, I'm going to take matters into my own hands here. Verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and said, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, well, what will you give me? What's, what's the payment? Let's negotiate payment here. And he answered, well, I'll give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, well, I, you know, I see you don't have a goat with you. So what's your pledge? What, what are you going to promise me that you'll make good on this payment? 
And he said, well, what do you want? What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, oh, how about your signet and your cord and the staff that's in your hand? The signet is either a ring or a stamp that would have been used in identification purposes. You, know, you didn't sign on the dotted line in those days. You had a, a stamp or a seal of some sort that would signify that you are officially uh, you know, putting your name on a, a document, an agreement. So this is his ID. This is his driver's license. This is his social security card. And the cord is the necklace that it would have been hung around. And just for good measure, his staff. A recognizable staff. This, this would be something like, you know, you go to a restaurant, you forget your debit card. You say, oh, I'll go get my debit card. I'll come back and pay. And then, okay, well, leave your driver's license and leave your identification with us until you come back and pay with your debit card. It's something kind of like that. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived. Then she arose and went away. She took off the veil. She put back on the garments of her widowhood. Now, Judah decided to send the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Hey, buddy, I, you know, can you go help me out? I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't want to show my face around there. Can you help me out? What a, what a, what a terrible man. So he's going to go take back the pledge from the woman's hand, but he couldn't find her. And so the friend is running around asking the men of the place, well, where's the, the cult prostitute who was at Enaim on the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitute been here. We don't know who you're talking about, buddy. Because she wasn't usually there. She specifically set up there to entrap Judah. So the friend went back to Judah and said, I've, I've not found her. And all the men said, there's, there's no, such, no such persons here. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Let me, let me translate that. I hope she keeps quiet. This could be really embarrassing. Man. You see, I sent the goat, tried to, tried to pay, and you didn't find her. Now, about three months later, about how long you can hide a pregnancy, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. And what's more, she's actually pregnant by this immorality. It's not just that she, you know, slept with somebody. She hasn't waited for, you know, Sheila, the promised husband-to-be. She's actually gotten pregnant. And Judah's hypocritical response is, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Here's what she says. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify, or some translations say, please examine these to see whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give to her, did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. And the story concludes that Tamar gives birth not just to one, but to two. She has twins. One encounter, two children, the younger of whom is Perez, who becomes the father of Hezron, who becomes the father of Ram, all the way down the line until Jesus the Messiah. And boy, you thought your family was messy. (laughs) 
Now do you see why this is so shocking to have this included in the family tree of Jesus Christ? The the king, you're, you're writing a royal genealogy. We want all to know that Jesus is the promised rightful king of Israel. Let's mention this story. Don't ever let anyone tell you that genealogies are boring. Every word is there by the design of God himself. Let me draw out a couple of thoughts, a couple of lessons from this story. And the first one is this. The Bible is incredibly honest. The Bible is surprisingly honest. You know, sometimes the culture has a view of Christianity and of Christians as a bunch of people who are do-gooders, upright, morally upright, keep their nose clean, do a bunch of good stuff. I remember having a conversation with someone years ago, and I said, well, are you a Christian? They say, well, I try to be. And I said, that's not how it works. You don't try to be a Christian. What you're talking about is trying to be a good moral person. Either you are or you aren't a Christian. Either you have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, or you have not. There's not trying to be a Christian. But the Bible is honest. And if we're honest, sometimes we as Christians, sometimes the church has not always done a good job of portraying the surprising, shocking honesty that the Bible itself gives to us. Sometimes we try to play the game as well. Do we not? How are you doing, brother? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm great. You know, how's your week? I'm fine. It's good. The Bible is so shockingly honest. I was talking about uh, this story with, with Hannah, one of our staff members this week, and she was recounting a time where she lent a Bible to a, a non-Christian coworker. It was before she worked at Sound City. All of our staff are Christians, praise God. But uh, she, the previous job, I think, previous job, uh, she was working, and, and this guy that she was working with said, oh, I think I just want to read the Bible. I wanna, I'm going to try this. And she said, well, I, I'll lend you a Bible. She's never got the Bible back. The guy got, thir- the guy got 38 chapters in, and showed up at work and went, what in the heck is this? What is, like, this is in the Bible? This is what the Bible talks about? Yeah. This is what the Bible talks about. And friends, I don't know about you, but I don't really have any desire to play church. I don't have any desire to try to play the good churchy Christian game. If this is the word of God that is given to us, let's find ourselves in this story. It's like the Apostle John says in 1 John 1 where he says, you know, God is light and there's no darkness in him. And we, we can't say that we have fellowship with God and yet, yet walk in the dark. We're, we're lying. We're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, it says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's not only the sins that we have committed, that is the sins that have been committed against us. It is all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess, you know what confess means? Like, say it out loud. Let's not spiritualize, oh yes, confession in my heart. That's not what confessing is. It means speaking it. Yes, to God, but it says fellowship with one another. Other people are assumed all throughout this section of Scripture. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us, but if we confess our sin, He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that's not only the things that we have done, but the things that have been done against us. The Bible is honest. Let's be people who walk in the light. Amen? Number two, sin is always a trap. 
Sin is always a trap. We live in a world that has a high value on this idea of the right to privacy. And on the one hand, I am very grateful that there is some semblance of privacy from the government of the United States of America. We all have phones that are listening to us anyways, but, you know, the idea is there, okay? But where does the Bible promise us that we have a right to privacy before the Lord? We have no such guarantee. In fact, we have a guarantee that the God who is omniscient knows all and sees all. And when we think that we're participating in sinful behavior that doesn't have consequences, doesn't have ramifications, friends, I'm here to tell you it does. Sin is always a trap. I had a professor in seminary, Warren Gage, who actually wrote a book on this story. And he draws out something really interesting. Uh, he, he starts in Genesis 37. Joseph's, brother, Joseph's brothers ask their father to please examine the bloody robe of their brother Joseph. In chapter 38, Tamar asks Judah to please examine the signet ring cords and staff she holds. Although the text in chapter 37 says the brothers ask their father to please examine the robe, it's very possible that Judah who was acting as the leader in the plot against their brother, spoke these words to their father Jacob. Could it be that God allowed those words to come back to haunt Judah in his great sin against Tamar? It's like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms or Twitter shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Friends, this is an invitation and a plea to learn from the bad example of Judah to not think that you can just go around and hide in sin that God won't find out. There were always ramifications. And if not in this life, into the next. So the Bible invites us to be incredibly Honest, the Bible invites us to not presume upon the grace of God and continue in sin. But friends, there's good news because the third thing that we can see about as clearly as you can see anything from this story is this. Our greatest sin is still not as big as God's grace. I tell you what. I mean, like I said a moment ago, it's, it's hard to think of a just messier, more ugly story in the Bible. Oh, but don't worry. We got a few more coming up during this Women of the Advent series. What were we thinking? Okay. Uh, I mean, just think, like, you got Judah is a scoundrel. Ur, his wicked son, dies. Onan, his next son, is even worse, dies. And let's just say that Tamar's actions are not exactly exemplary. I mean, there's at least deception, covering yourself with a veil, intentionally sitting out at the city gate, and sexual immorality, at least. So nobody's really making good choices. And you might look at this, you might think, this is the family that God chose to work through? This is the family that God brings about the Messiah from? Really? Yes. Because God wants to show off not 
our good deeds, but his incredible grace. Tamar, in the Bible, is commended. It is remarkable to me. Right here in Genesis 38 and verse 26, Judah himself says it. She is more righteous than I am, or she is more in the right than I am. You could translate it that way as well. Later in the book of Ruth, when we get there in a few weeks, there's this prayer. After Ruth gets married to Boaz, Ruth is a Moabitess, and, and it's, there's some interesting stuff happening there at the threshing floor at night. And they're praying over Ruth, and they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Basically, they're praying, will you have a real, May you have a really fruitful womb like Tamar. One encounter, two kids, That's a good return on the investment if you catch my drift. This is the way that they're thinking. This is a really fruitful womb. May your womb be like that. And then her inclusion in Matthew chapter 1, she is commended in the pages of the scripture. And I sit there as a 21st century Westerner, as a, as a good Christian person who knows that deception and, and, and sexual immorality are wrong. And he's kind of scratching her head. Why is she commended? Why is she spoken of this way in the pages of the scripture? I think there's a few reasons. The first one is is simple. She's standing up for her rights. She does have rights under the laws of leveret marriage. She absolutely is doing that which is within her legal rights. Now, she's going about it in an uh, an end-around sort of a way, but she is standing up for what she is owed, which is offspring, protection, all of that sort of stuff. I know, again, it's, it's culturally very distant from us, but she's, she's just standing up for her rights. The second one, though, and this is really interesting to think about, is there's an element of shrewdness and like taking action in this story of Tamar. It's, it's almost like, you know, we, we like some of these kinds of stories. Uh, the, we call it the anti-hero. You guys know what the anti-hero is? You see like a story where someone's just kind of beaten down, they're beaten down, they're beaten down, and then one day they're like, you know what? I'm not going to take it anymore. And they take matters into their own hands and they put together a plan or something like that. I mean, this is what most scholars, commentaries are seeing in the story of Tamar. She's pretty shrewd and she's commended for it. It reminds me of of the parable in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus tells this parable of the shrewd manager. It's actually sometimes translated as the parable of the dishonest manager. I was talking with Pastor Doug about it this morning. Like, that story kind of scares me. Like, that's in the Bible where Jesus says, sometimes you people who are followers of God don't know how to be shrewd enough. He's like basically commending a guy for being cutthroat in business. And we're like, Jesus, really? Or, or, or when Jesus says in Matthew 10 that we need to be as harmless as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. There's something in this story of, of Tamar saying, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to take action into my own hands. And because of that, she's commended in the pages of Scripture. And thirdly, we have the benefit of seeing the bigger picture, and it's this. It's her commitment to the family line. She's married to the firstborn. She has an obligation to continue the family line. Now, I don't think that Tamar fully knew that her actions were going to lead many generations later to the birth of the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. I don't think she had that much of the picture. But she knew the little piece that she knew, and she was faithful to the role and the responsibility that she had as part of this family, as wicked as they were. And you know what's really interesting? Again, 
This is the family line that brings about the Messiah. And it all starts with Tamar's actions. You know, (laughs) this story of Judah continues on. When we met him, he's a bad person, selling his brother into slavery. Here he's in Canaan. He's, I mean, just raising bad sons. It's just bad, 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 bad. But if you keep reading the story, there's a moment in Judah's life where we see a little bit of a different side of him. Actually, we see a drastically different side of him. If you know the story, you know that eventually Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery, is now the second in command in Egypt. He's second only to the Pharaoh. And there ends up being a big famine in the land. And this family... Judah and all of his brothers end up going to Egypt to try to buy food because there's no more food in the land of Canaan where they're living. They show up there and they don't recognize their brother. They thought that Joseph was dead and and he recognizes them. And there's this drama and all this. I mean, read the last section of Genesis. It is high drama. And Joseph decides to test them to see if if anything has changed over all these years. You know what he does? He takes a, a cup, he takes a goblet, and he hides it in one of the sacks of grain. He hides it in the sack of grain of the youngest brother, the one who he knows is their dad's favorite. He knows that Jacob loves Benjamin the most. So he hides a cup in there, in his sack of grain. Then he sends the soldiers out as they're leaving. He goes, aha, you, you stole this cup. It's you, you hid it in your bag of grain. You all come back here and this youngest brother, we're going to throw him in prison. We're going to you know, lock him up and throw away the key and we're going to just take him and execute all of our vengeance upon him. Do you know who speaks up? Judah. In Genesis 44, he says, no, 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 listen. I made a pledge of safety for this boy to my father. I, I promised my father that I would keep this young boy safe. I told my dad, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before my father for the rest of my life. Now, therefore, take me instead. Let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Does that sound like the same Judah that we've been looking at up until this point? No, no, you know, grand vizier. No, no, no. Don't take the younger brother. I made a promise. I need to stick to my word. I'll substitute myself. Let my brother go free. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does it sound like someone else who would be descended from the line of Judah who would show up on the scene and say, I will substitute myself so that my brothers can go free? Does it sound like the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who the author of Hebrews says became like his brothers so that he might become a propitiation for us? He might take the punishment that we deserve and offer us grace and mercy and freedom through his death on the cross and through his resurrection on the third day? Friends, does Judah remind you of Jesus in this moment? It is remarkable. This is remarkable that Judah, this this wicked man, has now gone through some sort of heart transformation where in this moment he serves as a type. He serves as a portrait of the Savior of the world. And it all starts 
with Tamar holding him accountable. Man, I don't know about you, but I find this very encouraging that God works through this messed up family to bring about the greatest act of redemption that the world has ever known. Warren Gage says this again. He says, although Judah, rather than Joseph, is chosen by God as the ancestor of Christ, it is clear from Judah's conduct earlier in his life that God did not choose him because of his moral superiority. Can we get an amen from the church on that one? Can there be a greater display of grace and mercy than the fact that the lineage of Christ continues with Perez, who is the product of the illicit encounter between the wicked Judah and the scheming Tamar. I said it before, and I'll say it again. God's grace is so much greater than our sin. Now, some of you here today, I I pray that your family is not this messed up. But I know that some of you here today are, are walking in some difficult and messy situations. Some of you are facing things in your life, you're like, I don't really have a good choice here. What's my choice? What do I do? Nothing in front of me seems like it's all that desirable. And I would simply say this. If this is how big God's grace is, if this is how potent the gospel is, it means a few things for us. It means, number one, that we can practice honesty. Okay? You and I can actually practice real, genuine honesty. Where we say the true reality of how things are. The actual reality of what has happened in your life, what is happening in your life, what you fear might happen in your life. No sugarcoating, no glossing it over. No putting a nice Christian bow on it. Real, genuine honesty. If this is the scriptures that God has given to us, let's be real and let's be honest. Number two, let's include godly people in our life. One of the things that breaks my heart about this story is that Tamar really does not have any advocates in this story. She's alone. She's acting in in moments of desperation and making these choices. But friends, God has provided for us the church, his people, the family, the community of faith. When I, when I say practice brutal honesty, I don't mean with the cashier at the grocery store, okay? Hey, how are you doing today? Well, I got a coupon and also, man, real jacked up family situation here. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about you need like 50 people in your life. I'm talking about a handful, a small group of people that you can really entrust yourself to because you and I don't have to be alone like Tamar was in this story. God's provided his family, his people for us. Amen? Godly people that we can say, man, I got this choice and I got this choice. I actually had this conversation with somebody last week. You know, Pastor Aaron, I got this and I got that. And I was like, ooh, ah, that's tough. That was it. That's all I had. (laughs) I, but, you know, I'm, I'm joking, but I, sort of. Uh, but just those types of conversations, because, hey, help me see this. Maybe you're seeing something that I'm not seeing, and maybe it's just, hey, let's be patient, and let's wait, and let's, let's practice honesty, and let's include God's people. And then and number three, most importantly, is pray, Lord, I don't know how to sort out this mess. I know for myself, and, and maybe for you as well, there are moments where you want to spring into action and just start doing But friends, we, if we don't go before the Lord and pray prayers like, Lord, I don't know what to do in this scenario. I'm just not going to do anything until I've really spent 
a lot of time praying about these things. Let, let me just ask, show of hands, how many of you probably could pray more before the decisions you make, okay? I'm not really going out on a limb here. Lord, I trust you in this mess. I don't know how you're going to work your grace in this, but I trust you that you love me, and I trust you that you have grace for me, and I trust you in the middle of this mess. Because, Lord God, if you can bring goodness out of this messed up situation, I know you can bring something good out of my life and my messed up situation. That's how big God's grace is. Amen, church? And as we come now into a time of celebrating the Lord's table, and as we come to to sing and lift our voices in praise and in adoration of God, let's bring our hearts for real. In prayer, and in petition, and in trusting that God's grace is so amazing and so enormous. Friends, you pray with me. God, thank you for this story. God, it's hard sometimes to look at the unpleasantness of of human sin and and brokenness and and the different layers in this story, Lord God. But we thank you that you are not scared off by the biggest of messes that we could create, by, by by the most difficult circumstances, the wrongest of choices. God, you're not scared off by any of that, but you have pursued us in love through Jesus. And as we come now to the table, may we remember that the cross provides for our cleansing, for our forgiveness, for our washing, and for our healing. Bring us to the table now, I pray. The family of God together, in Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite Pastor Doug to lead us in communion and our younger students class to join us now at this time. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I mentioned this in the first service that how thankful I am um, for God's word. I, I know that most of you have probably um, read or listened to scripture being taught before, but there's always something that new is comes out of it, and it just it never ceases to amaze me um, for God's word and the teaching. So um, as we go into communion, go ahead and open your, your packets. And um, if you did forget to get one or if you didn't get one on the way in, we do have a couple down here and or if you can get one out at the entrances as well. Earlier, Pastor Aaron said, God's grace is far greater than our sin. I don't know about you guys, but I have to think about these things, even though it's just a few words here. God's grace, His favor, is greater than than our sin where we fail. It's in communion we remember the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus, who's also called our friend and our brother. So we remember the sacrifice for our sin. And it's at the cross that we're reminded, in light of what Jesus did for us, that the pain that he's allowing in our lives, in in your life right now, It's hard to really comprehend, but it's because he wants the very best for us. You see, communion is essential because we can get mixed up by what happens or perhaps what doesn't happen. I'm so thankful that we practice communion every week. 
we can get confused by pain and sadness and sorrow. When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded once again of his inexpressible love for us. Of the suffering that he experienced and the death that he lived that was punishment for our sin. I find it's often in the pain of life, in the sadness of this broken world. And honestly, you guys, lately it's been very heavy. I, I, God's really opened my eyes to the brokenness around me. Sometimes these things happen closer to us, and it really it just breaks my heart. It's often this brokenness, the sorrow of death, that draws me closer to him and gives me hope. I love the scripture that says, what man meant for evil, God means for good. So listen to a moment, listen for a moment to Paul from 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget this. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, and it's in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance as, of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. One more time. God's grace is greater than our sin. So take time now before we eat the bread and take the cup to follow Paul's exhortation. Be honest. Remember. Give thanks that we are his. Pray. Confess. Repent. And receive God's grace. Then when you're ready, take of the bread and the cup. Father, we come into your presence only by the blood in the name of Jesus. So now direct our thoughts, our words, and our prayers for our good and your glory. Amen.